When you need to refuel between meetings or running errands, or you just want a healthy snack that squashes your hunger, wonderful pistachios, which come in a variety of flavors and sizes, by the way, are the perfect choice to fill you up and keep you going throughout the day. Wonderful Pistachios is also a good source of protein and a zero-guilt snack. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, guys, which gives you over 10% of your daily value. And with flavors like salt and pepper, sweet chili, and seasoned salt in the shelled variety, options like chili roasted, sea salt, and vinegar or jalapeno lime in the no-shell variety, you're sure to please your taste buds while snacking healthy. So check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, who has not taken advantage of the week free trial of the fitness app yet. Check it out. It is a one-stop shop for all your fitness, nutrition, and wellness needs. Custom meal plans, personalized workout programs, meditations, sleep programs, community support, and so much more. You can use it on any device, anywhere, any place, anytime. No equipment needed or all the equipment in the world is in there. There's yoga, there's kickboxing, there's audio only workouts, there's HIIT training, weight loss programs, prenatal programs, anything and everything you can think of is in the fitness app. And if you go to thefitnessapp.com slash podcast deal, you can get 25% off an annual subscription for $89.99 a year. So check it out and start your free trial today. Welcome to Keeping It Real Conversations with Jillian Michaels. All right, my lovely ones. Today's conversation is with resident gastroenterologist, Dr. Robin Chutkan. Um, we're going to be digging into her book, Gut List, today. You know, she has many books. We've talked about pretty much all of them. This is the third show that we're doing with her in the series we're doing with her. And we're going to be looking at... Okay, now bear with me because I I'm having the hardest time pronouncing this. Astrabolome, I think I'm. Yes. God help us all. Am I doing it right, Cindy? That was right. So, that was correct. Uh, astrabolome is Stabolome. looking. Astrabolome, good lord, is looking at in particular the colony of microbes in your microbiome that play a very significant role in regulating estrogen levels in the body. Okay, so. You can be estrogen dominant, that can have a host of problems. You can have enough estrogen, that can have a host of problems. So keeping these guys healthy to do their job and balance your estrogen levels optimally is critical. This is going to weigh in to everything from PCOS, fertility issues, perimenopause, menopause, all the things, because as we know, estrogen is a, <laughs> it's just a monster hormone driving so many different ships in our bodies. So big topic today. I also want to address the fact that we've come to the end of January for the most part, right? 2023. And I would be remiss 
if I did not check in on your New Year's resolutions. And maybe you're like, maybe you're like me, right? And you're like, oh my God, stop. Did we do New Year's resolutions? I didn't even address it. Cause I was like, this is such a tired concept, right? Like I, I'm all, I'm done with it. I used to be into like, let's grab it. Let's capitalize on it. Let's, let's use it as an incentive, as a momentum. But I mean, I'm constantly tweaking, changing, improving. Uh, and I, that's where I'm just, you know, look, if it's a new year and it, and it facilitates you deciding to make a change, I love it. I'm certainly, certainly not going to, um, prevent myself from exploiting the opportunity to get healthier myself and encourage you guys to get healthier and make healthy changes. However, one of the great ironies of New Year's for me this year is it totally threw me off all the healthy changes I was making because not only was I traveling for work, but I was sick as an effing dog because one child gave me COVID and right as I was healing from COVID, the other little bastard gave me RSV. So I got whack-a-mold by these two savages. And here I am like, I had been doing 16 hour intermittent fasts, right? I'd been like cold therapy, hot therapy, just a crazy, my supplement regimen. And I was like, I'm going to live to 300 years old. Like <laughs> I was already, and you know, I got knocked off the wagon and completely sideways. Not only have I, all my level of fitness has been effed. I haven't been able to work out in about a month and a half with the exception of some walking and two snowboard sessions before I almost barfed up my lung coughing. I have had a fraction of my supplements because I'm not home. So only like the absolute kind of bare, bare minimum basics. I have not had access to cold heat, you know, saunas and cold plunges. None of the above. And the crap that I have put into my body because of this, that I fought as hard as I possibly could, but you get to the point where you're like, okay, I can't get through the night. Like I need some sort of cold suppressant. I'm like waking up yeah. hacking at three in the morning I'm not sleeping, like putting all this shit in my body that I do my best never to take. So I, 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 I was like, oh man. And I, I'm still not home by the way, guys, just, just to make you aware, you know, we're recording this, this show early on, earlier on in January. I still haven't gotten home. I've been away from home for three weeks and I'm like, oh my God, I just want to get home because I want to kind of gain control right over my health and wellness regimen, which brings me to the following point. There's always going to be something that throws you off the rails, whether it's, you know, who knows, right? You're going to, something will get sick, a work situation, something is going to throw you off the rails. So if you made a regimen now and you, you know, for New Year's and you fell off of it, or you made a regimen now for years and something happens and you fall off of it, the, the point is something will always throw you off of it. And I was pissed because I was like, oh my God, like I've been doing hypoxic training and I've gotten myself to such a great place. And I know the minute I go back to the gym, it's going to be like the dark ages for me again. I know my lungs are going to kill. <laughs> I know I'm going to want to throw up because I have all this crap built up in my system. I like, I'm going to go back to like barely being able to tolerate a 30 second cold plunge. I'm so pissed, but it is what it is. What choice do you have? That's kind of what I'm saying. Like, all right. You know, today was the first day I went back to my 16 hour fast window and I'm like, all right, today's my first day of jumping back into it where I feel I have enough energy to, to get through to the 16 hours. What could I control while I was sick? I could control my water intake. That was a big thing that I focused on. I could control taking the supplements that I had with me. Um, but when you're out of control and when life knocks you off the rails, 
It's annoying. I'm not going to take that away from you. It's frustrating and it's disappointing. However, mm-hmm. to just throw in the towel is absurd. It's like, yeah, it's a blip. It's a it's a shitty moment of your day, but in the course of your journey, so to speak, right? It it's still you get back on the wagon and you continue onward, no matter what setbacks come over the course of the year. Just remember that. So to throw in the towel is is giving up on life. Like that's not what we're doing here. Setbacks will happen. You're not alone. It pisses me off too, but it's okay. We can recapture it over the course of time. And isn't it better to spend a month, two months, three months recapturing that level of wellness as opposed to letting it slide for three months and going even farther behind? And three months comes and goes in a blink. One other thing I want to address, and we will touch upon this, I'm sure, with Dr. Chuck Han today. There is a resolution that I want all of you to make if you do not make it, and I'm seeing it more and more. The routine checkups. You know, Cindy and I have both had friends go through some things recently where it's like, you know, she was talking about her dad. Your dad was feeling sick, right? We'd been talking about it. We thought it was long COVID. And it turns out... Please go tell, might, tell well, everybody. So he might also have long COVID, but he also oh, has geez. mesothelioma. And everything along the way was sort of misdiagnosed of, oh, that rib pain you're having. You've always had a cough, so it's nothing, <sighs> um, which is, this is a very rare form. And it takes a long time to really give you any clues that you're right. really sick. So of course you he's symptomatic. But it's that whole like when you hear hooves think horses, not zebras, but you also um, you also have to think sometimes maybe maybe you should check into if it is a zebra. Check. Check. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You, you, um, you, yeah. Get a scan if it's if your doctor's like, no, this is because of this and this is long COVID and that's that. And and you're like, no, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. Ask for these things. Get your colonoscopy. Get your mammogram. Get yeah. these are things that go for the effing checkup. Do the blood yes. work. They're found early. It's nothing. It's 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 so less complicated. Fifty percent of the care right there is early detection, yeah. yes. in particular of cancer, but a host of other conditions. And you're going to see across the spectrum of guests in January. It's like all oh, metabolic disease. You know, we've been walking around. So many of us walk around with this for a decade. Before it gets recognized and becomes hugely problematic. Oh, if only we gotten scanned earlier. I have a friend who just went through it with a lump in her breast and she had a double mastectomy 15 years ago. And they were like, ah, it's nothing. And it wasn't nothing. And finally she demanded a scan. So this is a two part for the resolution that I am going to demand is number one, you make those routine checkups. God damn it. Find the time, spend the money. I don't want to hear it. I got a zero tolerance policy for it. Take your ass to the doctor. And I'm going to be literal because the one I've always avoided, I avoid like the plague. I've tried to get around. I do not want a colonoscopy. I don't want to crap my brains out all day long. I don't want a tube in my butt. I don't want any of it. I don't want it. It's the one that I've avoided and thought like I can poop in the box. No. And I, I've gotten the whole no. You're going to hear Chuck in, scream at me and say no. So if I'll do the colonoscopy this year, like you guys are taking your asses in for your checkups, your OBGYN, your prostate exams. If you're a dude, like no more putting this off to the doctor. And if there's anything suspect, you're going to advocate for yourselves this year. You're going to demand further explanation or further exploration. 
You're going to ask your doctors about these drugs. You're going to do your own homework, listen to our podcast, listen to other podcasts, reading books, doing your research, asking other doctors to interpret the information for you so that you can have a more educated conversation with your medical professional. And if they don't know, let them get back to you. Let them get back to you. Okay. And I know you're like, they might get pissed. I've seen it. Sometimes they get pissed. Fuck them. Find another doctor. I don't care. So, I, and I'm saying, I don't care about their feelings. I care about yeah. more wellness. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. So anyway, now that I've gone on a little tirade, we will <laughs> we'll be right back with Dr. Robin Shutkan to talk about your astrobalome. Oh my God. <laughs> Just go back to what I said earlier on the show. We'll be right back. Dr. Chuck pronounced it. We'll be right back. Your business was going great, but now your team is buried in manual work. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025, one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Jillian. That's netsuite.com slash Jillian to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash Jillian. All right, team. You know, I love Skims underwear because I've mentioned them and have been wearing them for, gosh, a little over a year now. So I finally had to try their bras and Skims has delivered yet again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. Even the underwire bras I wear all day are so comfortable, I barely even notice I'm wearing them. Whether it's the weightless scoop bra, the fits everybody bra, the plunge bra, uh, the fits everybody t-shirt bra. I always get them in sand, so you never notice them. Super comfortable. Love them. Wear them nonstop all the time. Shop Skims bras at skims.com now. Available in 62 sizes, 38 of 46 each, plus get free shipping on orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know I sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows. All right, team, we are back with gastroenterologist extraordinaire, Dr. Robin Chutkan. Doc, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. We are continuing our overwhelmingly popular series that you've been doing for us on gut health in relation to our overall health. And um, I'm going to try to tackle this one today, guys. I was reading your book, Gut Bliss, and holy cow, I didn't even understand ever or recognize that there was a connection between gut and hormones and estrogen dominance and this has a name and you've been trying to help me pronounce it for the last three minutes before we started the show. And I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to, I'm just going to let you do it. This is called what doc? It's called the estrobalome, like estro estrogen, and then balome. And Jillian, if it makes you feel any better, 
I went to med school for four years, did an internship, two years of residency, a year as chief resident, three years of gastroenterology fellowship. I'd never heard of it either. So don't feel bad. I'm willing to bet this is the first time 99% of our listeners have ever heard that term. What is it? I love sharing new information with your audience, especially stuff that's actionable that we can actually use to be healthier. So you have all these bacteria in your gut, right? And we refer to that as the gut microbiome. Trillions of organisms, not just bacteria, but viruses, fungal organisms, protozoa, parasites, all of it. So we refer to that collection of microorganisms in our gut, hundreds of trillions of them as the gut microbiome. Now within that gut microbiome are specialized communication, so specialized communities. So think of it as the world. And then within the world, you have countries, right? You have continents, you have countries. So there is a country within the world of your gut bacteria called the estrobilome. And what that specific community of gut bacteria do is they are involved in metabolizing and modulating your estrogen. Now to understand, like, because people are probably going, well, what estrogen, wait, isn't that made in my ovaries? Like, what is estrogen doing in my gut? How does it even get in there? So let's go all the way back oh, to, so to how the but, estrogen. But like you hear about this stuff though, and it's like, well, serotonin is made in the gut, and you're like, yeah. what? So I, I, you've gotten me to the point where I'm like, well, of course it is. But <laughs> I mean, it seems totally, it, it inherently seems counterintuitive and bizarre. Because yes, you, it, it, and by the way, Doc, I've watched tons of stuff, different lectures of brilliant scientists on YouTube or wherever I can find them. Like, oh, how to naturally improve your levels of estrogen or testosterone. And not once, not once have any of them talked about this, which is just like scary to a certain extent, but not to say they're not amazing. They are, but that this is so kind of unexplored outside of what the work you're doing in gut bliss and so on. So, okay, sorry, doctor. Okay, so this part of your microbiome is responsible for estrogen. So I've got I've got about a million perimenopausal women listening right now <laughs> that, want to, that are like glued to their headphones. So please continue. Yeah. So estrogen, which is a hormone that, of course, is involved in not just our reproductive function, but regulating body fat, our cardiovascular health, our bone health, our brain function, our libido. It's a pretty important hormone. It's not just a hormone that's there to get us pregnant. So it is made primarily in your ovaries. And everybody, you know, everybody knows what the ovaries are. Now there's some estrogen also made in the adrenal glands, but we're not going to worry about that for now. For now, we're going to say estrogen is a reproductive hormone and a whole lot more because it controls all these other aspects of our health. It's made in the ovaries. So it's made in the ovaries and it's sent out to all these different cells in the body via the bloodstream. And and remember, it's not just the reproductive organs that have receptors for estrogen. They're receptors for estrogen in our brain, in our kidneys, all throughout. So it acts on all these different cells in the body. And then when it's done, like sort of the leftover estrogen, remember estrogen is metabolized through the liver. So it all ends up in the liver. That's like your main organ of detoxification. And then it gets excreted into the bile. Remember, in the liver, we're also making bile. And a lot of the fat-soluble hormones, they get excreted into bile. They get into the gut in the bile. And the gut is where they are then sort of recirculated. 
Now, the main reason that the estrogen gets into the gut is to be excreted out in the stool, a little bit in the urine, but it can also get reabsorbed through the lining of the gut. So you want to make sure, I mean, this is just, Jillian, this is the incredible thing about our body is all these positive and negative feedback loops that are designed to keep us just in the right level of balance based on what we need. So here's one example of how that works. So in the gut, you have now this collection of bacteria, the estrobilome, and they make an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And the whole function of the whole point of beta-glucuronidase is to keep these estrogen levels in balance. If you have a healthy microbiome and a healthy astrobilome, remember the collection of gut bacteria, they're making just the right amount of beta-glucuronidase, and that allows just the right amount of estrogen to be reabsorbed through the gut lining and get back into the bloodstream. So it's like a second bite at the apple, so to speak. Yes, yes, I love that. It is a second bite of the apple. So what it means is that it puts, it takes off some of the stress of your, on your ovaries, because you're actually able to recirculate and reuse some of that estrogen to keep the estrogen levels just right. Now, what? so when it's working, it's fantastic, right? You're making the estrogen in your ovaries, it's traveling to different organs, it's getting recirculated, excreted in the liver, into the bile, into the gut, and then the gut, you know, based on the collection of bacteria, deciding, okay, we're going to reabsorb 10% and excrete 90%, or we're gonna reabsorb 20% and excrete 80%, based on what your body's estrogen needs are. Fantastic when it's working. What happens when it's not working? I was going to say, like, what is going to determine when it's working and when it's not working? And then I got to ask menopause is a whole totally separate question because it seems as though the body's like, well, we don't need this anymore. When in fact, it seems you need it more so than ever. Well, you different levels, right? And that's the thing that I'm always trying to remind people. It's not just better, you know, the more the merrier. At different times in your life, you need more estrogen. And at other times in your life, too much estrogen, what we call estrogen dominance, can lead to uh, estrogen-related cancers like breast cancer. They can lead to mood disturbances, heart disease, et cetera. So you don't want more estrogen than you need at that particular point. Hence the regulation, right? Hold on one second. Can you you speak a little bit more on estrogen dominance? This would be things like, um, with melasma, like having the, 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 yeah. the dark splotches all over mm-hmm. your face, um, having a, I, women that have fat distributed unevenly would be another sign of yeah, metabolic syndrome where you tend to have a lot of central fat, sort of central obesity, and you often have problems with your lipids and can be related to other problems as well. So some of the things we see, And of course, there are other reasons too, but some of the things we see associated with estrogen dominance include things like PMS, obesity, infertility, mood disorders, heart disease, and, you know, things like the melasma we talked about. But of course, there are other parts too. So again, it is, you want the right estrogen amount of estrogen for where you are in life, right? And too much estrogen at the wrong time can cause cancer. Too Too little estrogen can cause infertility. Oh, oh my God. So this is strobilum. Yeah. Did I say that right? You got it. You nailed okay, it. Okay, doc, look at me. Uh, is responsible for tamping down or ramping up when it's working properly. Exactly. So let's okay, now talk I got you. about I got you. when it's not working properly. 
Got it. So in order to figure out why the estrabolone may be out of balance, you got to look at all the factors that lead to general gut dysbiosis, imbalance in the gut microbiome. And we're going to circle back to that, but I want to stay on the theme of messed up estrabolone. And then we'll, you know, we'll circle back to messed up in general gut microbiome. So now you have an estrabolome where the bacteria are in disarray. You have too many of one, not enough of another. And what happens is you have increased production of beta-glucuronidase because you don't have enough of the healthy bacteria keeping it checked. So now your beta-glucuronidase is too high. And what that means is you're going to reabsorb more estrogen out of the gut than you normally would. So instead, let's say you were just arbitrarily supposed to reabsorb 10 to 20%, now you may be reabsorbing, you know, 60 to 70%. You're going to end up with estrogen dominance, estrogen levels that are too high. Oh. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned your sort of menopausal, perimenopausal audience. I'm in oh that audience because yeah. we, we have been indoctrinated by the pharmaceutical manufacturers to believe that we're missing estrogen and we need more estrogen. And if we just take more estrogen, you know, everything will be great. We'll have thick hair and shiny skin and well lubricated vaginas and tons of libido. And it's just going to be better. No belly fat. It's going to be great. We're going to be restored to question doc. Now we're going to be restored to our 30 year old selves. Yes. Not True. <laughs> okay. Jesus. Not true. Now for, for some women, menopausal women who are struggling with, for example, vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes, vaginal atrophy, estrogen replacement, either in the form of topical estrogen, which is what I typically recommend in the form of a cream estradiol that you can use as a vaginal suppository that can help a lot with vaginal atrophy and dryness. The vasomotor symptoms, the hot flashes can be helped tremendously through diet and lifestyle recommendations like drinking less alcohol or none, like eating uh, less food at night and eating earlier because a lot of what causes us to have those hot flashes are things that dilate the blood vessels like alcohol. Alcohol is one of the biggest vasodilators. So I will tell you, if you are going to drink and you are struggling with hot flashes, Think about drinking earlier. Think about having that glass of wine, you know, at four o'clock or five o'clock. That's what rather it is. Rather than at eight or nine o'clock. It's a o'clock. vasodilation. That's what a hot flash is. That is. I mean, there's some other elements to it, but that's essentially what it is. Oh and you sweat God. because your body is trying to, you cool know, cool down. off. Yes. And that so alcohol oh is God. a big trigger. Digestion. Digestion is a very active process. It involves a lot of blood flow to the digestive organs. So if you're eating, I mean, I can guarantee that I will have hot flashes if I eat a meal with a lot of animal protein, like a steak or a lot of chicken and drink alcohol at night. I, I just did that the other day <laughs> at a meal, like big meat, lots of animal protein, lots of alcohol around the New Year's. And I was, listen, I was like a Christmas tree at night. I was just, you know, flashing and sweating and all of that, but I can control it. And most people can. Dr. Neil Barnard and his colleagues at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, they have a great article that was published a couple of years ago showing that switching to a plant-based diet yeah, I was going to say he's the vegan he's, guy, right? Yeah, he's a yes. vegan guy, but he's he's, the, he's will... a vegan guy based in science. So switching to a plant-based diet can is was superior in their study 
to hormone replacement therapy. Now, not everybody wants to go vegan, but here's the thing. You don't have to go vegan. If you decrease the amount of animal protein, increase the amount of plants, and particularly at night for dinner, have a lighter dinner, have a soup and salad for dinner, have your animal protein earlier in the day, you can really help control those symptoms. Now, again, there's always going to be that cohort of people where they just need the hormones, right? And I, as a conventionally trained doctor, I'm super happy that we have hormone replacement therapy for those people. But what I want the majority of people to understand is that it's not just an easy, oh, I'm just going to put a patch on or take this pill. Yeah, that might help your symptoms, but you have to consider the flip side. You have to consider heart disease risk, all of these other things, cancer risk, et cetera, right? Like what are the risks and benefits to taking hormone replacement therapy versus not taking hormone replacement therapy. And that issue of, you know, what's your risk of breast cancer? What's your risk of heart disease? What's your risk of dementia? How those factors make that hormone replacement therapy more or less attractive have to be figured out on an individualized basis. I could never give somebody a a general recommendation. If somebody says to me, Should I take HRT? I would have to go into a detail. First of all, I would have to say, listen, I'm just a lowly gastroenterologist. I'm not an OBGYN. But here, I can do a fantastic rectal exam on you. But but here's what, in all seriousness, here's the things I want to know. Tell me about your family history of heart disease. Tell me about your family history of reproductive cancers. Tell me about your family history of dementia. Tell me about your personal risk factors for all of those things. And then let's decide because, you know, there's circumstances, as you know, Jillian, where hormone replacement therapy can not only help symptoms, but it can decrease risks of certain conditions. Right. Right. So it's not a straightforward answer. But I also want to make sure that people know that there are things they can do that have less risk. And things like, you know, for most of us, cutting down on alcohol or eliminating it can only lead to good things. That is only going to improve your health, as challenging as it may be. And so if you're really having bad hot flashes and you're considering hormonal replacement therapy, by all means, have that conversation with your OBGYN, but also try some of these things that try more plants, less animal protein, eating earlier at night, less alcohol, and, and see what happens. You know, try it for 30 days and track it because again, Decreasing or eliminating alcohol and in- eating more plants are only going to improve your of health, course. right? Whether yes. or not they they improve the symptoms. So it is all about really keeping that population, that community of bacteria in your gut that are responsible for this reabsorption and modulation of estrogen levels. It's all about keeping it healthy. And how do you do that? The same way we keep the rest of the gut microbiome healthy. We eat a lot of plants. We avoid unnecessary medications like antibiotics and acid blockers. We exercise. We try to be mindful about stress. We get sleep. All those things that improve our gut microbiome also help keep our estrobilome balanced and happy so that our estrogen levels can be balanced and happy. Okay. We got to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to dig into a, a bit more specifics on this little colony of bugs and, and see if in particular they they can't be supplemented or or you know I want specific stock. So we'll be right back. We are talking with Dr. Robin Chutkin and today we're really digging into gut bliss. So stick with us. Quick moment from the sponsors. Be right back. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, we are back with Dr. Robin Chutkin talking about the astrobalum. And she had the nerve to try to talk to me during the break. I was like, do not speak to me until everybody is listening. Don't do that. Doug, okay, what were you just about to say? Yeah, she literally told me to shut the bleep up. I no, she just told me to shut up. She just, yeah. like, she, she she just did a word. nice like zip it. She's yeah, very polite. She's always uh, polite. Okay. <laughs> All right. What I want people to know, and especially not just our menopausal, you know, compadres, but everybody, everybody who has estrogen cursing through their blood. What I want you to know is that when the estrogen you know, when it is excreted into the bile in the liver, where the liver sort of combines it with the bile, and when it's excreted into the gut, it is excreted into the gut primarily because it is meant to be disposed of. This is a way for your body to get rid of excess estrogen, okay? Your body has decided we don't need all this extra estrogen. The estrogen has gone to, you know, your heart and your brain and wherever else it's needed and the reproductive organs and everything is good. And there is excess estrogen and we're going to get rid of it. So the same way that the other stuff coming into your gut is meant to be excreted, right? The dead blood cells, the dead bacteria, all the waste matter, all the stuff that your liver has detoxified in your body and it's now being dumped into the gut and the kidneys to some extent, to be excreted, that is what's supposed to happen, right? And that's why a healthy astrobalum will make enough beta-glucuronidase only to reabsorb whatever needs to be reabsorbed. So when that is disrupted and you have high levels of beta-glucuronidase and you have more reabsorption, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, oh but because God. we have been because okay. we've been conditioned yeah, more estrogen, to think of more, estrogen more as more like, estrogen. oh, I'm missing estrogen. I want, you yes. know, so no, 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 no. You're interfering. Oh, I mean, look, PCOS. Oh, it's too much androgenic hormones. Fertility, not enough estrogen. Menopause, perimenopause, not enough estrogen. And unless you've suffered with a um an is it estrogen responsive. Uh, type of, I can't remember the official name, type of cancer, like you mentioned earlier. Yes, yes. I don't know that the majority of us are coming at it from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is, you know, I think if I could sort of give one big takeaway for most of what I tell people is your body, when left to its own devices, if you don't bleep it yes, up, it. yeah, it will do what it's supposed to do beautifully. It's that we interfere with it, right? We sabotage it. We block stomach acid. We kill off gut bacteria. We, you know, abnormally disrupt this balance with our estrogen levels. So, I mean, yes, there are people who have real conditions where you need to intervene. But again, there are times in our life, I mean, there's a reason, right, that our estrogen levels fluctuate and change menopausally. And the main reason is because nature does not want us reproducing. Nature does not want my 56-year-old egg to get fertilized. That is a disaster as far as nature is considered, you know, considers it. Because while I think the rest of me is pretty intact for 56, my eggs are 56 years old. Remember, we are born with all our eggs. 
Yes. As women, yeah. men are making you sperm. My 55 year old husband, he's making you sperm as we speak. Right. So right. He, him now sperm deteriorate too, right? Like a 90 year old man, you know, impregnating somebody that's not great either. Right. But that is why. And I think about this all the time, Jillian, you know, the way like, you know, nature and evolution works. That is why as we get into these menopausal years, right, where we're not ovulating anymore, or, or we are ovulating minimally, that is why, you know, the body starts to kind of look different, right? Because nature doesn't want us blooming and, you know, looking like, oh, come fertilize me, gray hair, My wrinkles, God. saggy boobs, dry vaginas, all of it. It's all designed to keep us from getting fertilized. So we have to work a little bit harder for sure. Right. But I like to say the bloom is off the rose Uh, and it's off the rose for a reason. I mean, you look at, I mean, half in just, but you look at 20 year olds, like they jump out of bed and they look like they're ready to be fertilized. They have to do very little. And it's because that's who nature wants to be fertilized. The 20 year old egg, not the 56 year old egg. God. And, and oh you know, when God. you realize that, like, okay. it doesn't mean that you just have to be like, okay, well, I give up, you know, let me just go and wither yeah. away. Wither away and die. Yeah. Slow yeah. descent no. into decrepitude. But, but it's harder, right? There's more maintenance to be done in, in lots of different areas, right? It is, it is definitely more challenging. And the same way as we think about, you know, somebody who's ovulating actively versus somebody who's ovulating minimally or not at all, also think about like an eight-year-old. Versus a 20 year old. And that's why premature menarche, when you see girls starting to have their period at eight or nine, that's also not a good thing. That is not what nature intended. Once you start menstruating as a woman, this means that you are now ready to reproduce as far as nature is concerned. And what that means is there's a certain amount of brain maturation too. Eight and nine year old girls don't have the brain maturity to be running their own household. And a lot of this has to do with the hormones in our environment, right? The hormones in the food, the hormones in environmental things, like, you know, there's stuff in the dry cleaning and all of that. Yes. So there are the what we estrogens, Exactly, right? exactly. These endocrine disruptors that disrupt these endocrine systems like, you know, the ovaries, the adrenals, et cetera, and sort of, create these abnormalities like 10 and 11 year olds and sometimes eight and nine year olds getting their period. They can disrupt things on a pituitary basis also. And so again, here's an example, just like as a menopausal woman, it's abnormal and potentially problematic to have the same estrogen levels as a 20 year old. Same thing applies like a seven year old and a 20 year old shouldn't have the same estrogen levels, right? There's, there's different requirements at different stages. So we have to be careful on the other side of ovulation, how we wish for and strive to sort of get back to, you know, what we were at 20 or 30, because, you know, there's going to be some consequences to that. And we talked about a lot of them with the estrogen dominance. Yes. Yes. Doc, on the, the estrobilum in particular, do we know what these micro, like, oh, it's acromantia. Oh, it's bifidobacteria. I mean, there's- trillions of these guys. 
Is there a way to say, oh, it's this one, this one, this one. That's what we need to supplement. We're, to fix we're, it. we're really not there. And because here's the thing, Jillian, it's right. not just which bacteria, like is it acromancy? Is it fecal bacterium prosnitia, et cetera? It's also how they are behaving. So it's also this oh, whole concept God. of the metabolome. We Jesus. talked about the estrobolome. We have the metabolome, what they are producing at different times. So even if you're like, okay, acromancy are part of a healthy you know, estrobolome and you take a big acromancia supplement, but the conditions in your body are not favorable for growth of acromancia, they're probably going to make different metabolites. So this is not like most things to do with the microbiome. This is not like an easy hack. You don't just like, Oh, let me, you know, let me go yeah. grab some of my friends. Yeah. Acromancia. Yeah. You have to create the conditions. And if you create the conditions, it's kind of like if you have a garden and the soil is really unhealthy and things aren't growing, you can't go to your friend's garden and just take like a really healthy plant and stick it in the ground and expect that it's going to grow. Right. You oh. have to address the conditions in your garden that are preventing things from growing. So you might have to look at the quality of the soil. Is it getting yes. enough sunlight? Is it getting enough water? Maybe you need to introduce some earthworms. So once you make that soil healthy, then you'll be able to grow all the healthy plants you want. So same thing. And taking a probiotic is a little bit like just, I'm going to take a healthy plant and stick it in my unhealthy soil and cross my fingers. And you, got, you got to do a little bit of work with it. Yeah. Yes, I understand. Doc, can you address this one thing? And it, it's a bit off the topic here, but I get another effing virus from my blessed children and I can't get rid of it for 10 days. I call my internist, practicing for 40 years, love the guy, puts me on a pack and goes, well, I go, but Doc, isn't it viral? And he's like, well, yeah, but, you know, we you know, probably won't help will prevent a secondary infection, but it won't hurt either. And it was the won't hurt either. I was like, holy shit, how could you say that? Doc, I could go on and on and on. My point being, you have doctors that are not easy to access in the first place, that we are going to with zero knowledge. The vast majority of us did not go to medical school. And we're being given this advice that is uh, lacking, uh, not irresponsible. Cause it seems lacking, like they don't lacking. Know. And it is always sobering as a physician to realize, like, I know a lot of these doctors, like when my patients come to me and they're like, Oh, this doctor said so-and-so I, I, nine times out of 10, I know the doctor and I know that they're well-meaning and I know that they're actually trying to help the person, but they are misinformed. And part of that misinformation, the missing piece of information is I don't think most people realize that a huge percentage of our ongoing medical education comes from the pharmaceutical industry. And not to sound like oh. a conspiracy theorist, but it's just a reality. So you have drug yeah. reps in doctor's offices and in the hospitals. You have, you know, if you think you're being marketed at as a consumer, you don't see the half of what we're being, how we're being marketed. When we go to conferences, our plenary sessions, the sort of keynote speaking sessions, those speakers, like, in the vast majority of cases, they are sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. They are, you know, being given grants and other financial incentives. And if you think that's not influencing what they tell you, then you you definitely have another thing coming. So it's almost all, like a blind spot. I'm like, how could you say it won't do any harm either? I'm like a Z pack. I remember Dr. Lee had once told me, and he's not a gastroenterologist. He's like, 
one Z pack can wipe out your entire acromancia colony. I'm like, yeah, William uh, Lee, author of Eat to Beat Disease, a great, great yes. colleague and and physician. And here's the thing. So I think for those a rare of us bird, like yourself, who are conventionally you are trained, like Dr. Lee and myself, really have an obligation because I think our, our colleagues realize that we're not, you know, zealots out there out to get them, but we are, you know, we've had the same training they've had, but we've had the benefit of some experiences and some additional research and inquiry post-medical school and residency that has led us to these this point and has led us to ask some of these important questions like, hmm, well, what else is that drug doing? Let me, while we're on the topic, let me recommend two books that are both, you know, written a while ago, but they're classics. And I give this to the graduating gastroenterology trainees as a gift most years. One is a book called Our Daily Meds by Melody Peterson. Melody Peterson is an investigative journalist. She's not a physician. She used to write for the New York Times and it's P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N, I believe. Melody Peterson, Our Daily Meds. I read this book, gosh, it must've come out 20 years ago, completely changed my perspective on medicine. The other book is a book by a physician named Dr. Gilbert Welch. And the book is called Overdiagnosed. And Dr. Gilbert Welch is a family practice doc, and he is hated in my community of gastroenterologists, because I'll tell you why. I I happen to think he's amazing. But most gastroenterologists, if you say the name Gilbert Welch, they'll want to throw a dart at his name because he famously wrote an editorial in the New York Times questioning the frequency of colonoscopy and saying gastroenterologists are overusing colonoscopy, and they're abusing the insurance company's willingness to reimburse, to, you know, use people's colon as an ATM in t- in cases where it's not indicated. So you've opened up a big door for me. When is the time to do it? Because my business partner was super pissed that he had to go get one. And he's like, why? I pooped in the box. I have no family history. 45. And here's why. Colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in non-smoking men and women, okay? I'm gonna say it again, because it's so important. And and even though in the previous breath, I was just saying that, yes, you know, gastroenterologists, many of them do have a tendency to overutilize colonoscopy. Let me also say very clearly and unequivocally that colonoscopy saves lives. Why? Because not only can it diagnose your polyp, which is that precancerous, growth, we can remove the polyp completely. We can prevent you from ever getting colon cancer. There are not a lot of tests that can do that. A mammogram doesn't actually remove the growth, right? A mammogram just tells you if you have something. But colonoscopy, we can see these polyps, which are these precancerous lesions. We can remove them completely and we can can veer you off that cancer course. So again, in non-smoking men and women, in non-smoking men, prostate is number one. And a non-smoking woman, breast is number one. But colon cancer is number two in both men and women for leading cause, not just not cancer, cancer deaths. Okay, because that's what we're trying to prevent. We are trying to keep people alive. So while I, on the one hand, you know, criticize my field and say that, you know, we're prescribing too much Nexium and acid blockers and we're using people as an ATM and doing more colonoscopy than needs to be done. In that same breath, I also want to say, if you don't have a family history of colon cancer, I don't care how healthy you are, you still need to go for that initial screening colonoscopy. It out. Now, if it's box. negative, I great. If it's negative, you don't have to go back for 10 years. 
but the the other screening test, you know, looking for (sighs) blood in the stool or some of the fancier tests that look for, you know, cancer material box they send you and you Poop yeah, in the they're box. not they're not ready for prime time yet in terms oh, of Jesus. being as right, helpful for both preventing, both diagnosing and preventing colon cancer. So I am a staunch oh. advocate for screening colonoscopy because I've been a gastroenterologist for almost three decades and it saves lives. I mean, I have removed on countless occasions big, huge polyps that were like a day away from cancer. And if this oh. patient had postponed this for six months or a year, they might not be here. Oh, and God, these are okay. people who were totally asymptomatic. So not to scare Whoa. people at all, because okay. that's never my goal. But I am the person who tells people, let me give you some medical advice. Limit your interaction with the medical community, right? For people who are constantly going to the doctor and so on. So I am the person who is always going to be the last person to recommend a test, the last person to recommend a medication, the last person to recommend a medical intervention if you don't really need it. I am very, very, very... skeptical Uh, about a lot of things we do in medicine. So when I am telling you, go get your colonoscopy, whether you're symptomatic, whether you have a family history or not, you can take it to the bank. Okay, doc. Okay. Question of the week at Haley writes asks, how does birth control and such affect gut health hormones? So, I mean, how would that affect your estrobolome? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, the menstrual this is a little bit of a long answer, but hopefully okay. I provide some good information. The menstrual cycle is divided oh, into these always <laughs> into always. these three phases: the follicular phase, followed by ovulation, and then the luteal phase. Now, remember, when you're taking hormonal birth control like the pill, you are suppressing ovulation. Ovulation isn't happening. But during these different phases, Lots of other things happen in your body in addition to what's happening in your uterus. So you have body temperature fluctuations. That's why we're able to check temperature to see how fertile we are because of the body. That's what that is, because these different these different phases are associated with changes. So changes in the body temperature, changes in libido, mood swings, changes in thyroid hormone production, and also changes in the gut. Because these fluctuating hormone levels lead to three important changes that can all cause GI problems, primarily bloating. You get an increase in intestinal gas production. You get an increase in water and salt retention, and that's because of the effect on the kidneys. And you get a decrease in bile production. Now, remember earlier, I told you. Yeah, the bile carries the the excess estrogen. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. So this stuff, again, is all related. So in addition to the fact that the estrogens are excreted in bile into the gut, bile also helps to emulsify or essentially break down fats and and get them into the absorbed through the small intestine. So if you have lower levels of bile, you can, in addition to it interfering with how the estrogen is recycled, et cetera. It's also going to interfere with gut function, typically leading to bloating, constipation, et cetera. So what I usually tell people who are on the pill is there are two really important things that I always want people to know. One of them is GI related and the other is not. The one that is not GI related is to say, look, this pill is going to suppress ovulation. You're going to stop ovulating. You're 25, no big deal. But 10 years from now, when you're 35 and you decide you want to have a kid and you stop taking the pill, 
and then you can't get pregnant and the doctor tells you, well, you're not ovulating, you know, it may have something to do with the fact that ovulation uh. has been suppressed for 10 years. Now, most OBGYNs will not agree with me on that. Right. Uh -huh. They will not agree with me on that. Right. But I find it hard right. to believe as a medical professional that you can yeah. suppress ovulation for over a decade. Zero and then, you know, like, yeah, you're still not ovulating, but it has nothing to do with the fact that you suppressed it for 10 years. OK, so I want people yeah. to be mindful of future uh -huh. um, fertility conception plans and maybe think about using wow. a non-hormone form of birth control barrier, et cetera, if they uh -huh. are closer to thinking about, you know, um, reproducing, wow. number one. But the second thing I was going to say, you know, I said, I tell, tell people two things. So, you know, one, just think about what that might mean, suppressing ovulation for a decade when you're ready to ovulate. Uh -huh. Number two, um, if you take the birth control pill and you don't find you have any GI symptoms, you're probably okay. But if you're taking the pill and all of a sudden you're retaining a lot of water, you're gaining weight, you're constipated, you're moody, all the, you know, all of these things, yeah. think about, whether this is really the right thing for you. And, you know, this is feedback your body's giving you, right? This is, that's what these side effects are. This is feedback. This is how your body is reacting to this thing that you're doing, the, the pill that you're taking. And in a particular group of patients, which are my patients who have autoimmune diseases, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis in particular, so inflammatory bowel disorders, inflammatory bowel diseases, these patients can often experience a flare-up of their symptoms when they start the pill. So in my Crohn's or colitis patients, I'm especially, I'm telling them, look, if you really, really want to go on the pill, I get it. It could be very convenient, et cetera. But I really want you to pay attention to your Crohn's and colitis symptoms. And if things start to you know, be a little more active, then I want you to get off the pill. So wow. those patients tend to have a little more sensitivity. Doc, you're, you're fantastic. Um, you have so many books today. We were in particular talking about gut bliss, uh, but there's a million more and you've once again enlightened our lives in such a tremendous, fantastic way. I adore you worship at your feet. Doc, what's the website? Give me the whole, just Hit us with the well, horns. We're right back at you for all that adoration. And, and let me just quickly take a minute to say that when we think about, you know, how we can hack the microbiome and all of this, can you hack your way to, we can't hack exercise, right? And, and so no. I always think about you with this, like you got to put in the work and it's the same thing with the microbiome and gut health. You have to put in the work and just like exercise, it's not super complicated, but you have to be consistent, right? It's exact same principles of that website, robinchutkan.com, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E-C-H-U-T-K-A-N.com. Check me out on Instagram at gutbliss. And it's always such a pleasure chatting with you and being able to share a little information with your amazing audience. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the show, do us a big favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it just helps us get the show out there, get heard by more people. We really appreciate it.